Good evening. You're listening to the Parlor No Rooks podcast, episode three. Misto, Mark Marlin, and much, much more. to the Parliament Rx podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Lanise, and with me as always is my wife and co-host, Melanie. Hello. So it's been quite a week here uh, with regard to the uh, Parliament of Rooks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Quite a bit of activity around, uh, you know, they all set up and so on and so forth. We have now gone live. Um, Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> two episodes put away. Um, we set up our website, uh, uh-huh. set up our Facebook group, uh-huh. <laughs> um, two different feeds. Uh-huh, yeah. So do you want to tell some folks, uh, you know, like where they can find us? TPORpodcast.com. Is our website. And on Facebook. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a Facebook group. So I think it's like facebook.com backslash groups backslash the Parliament of Rooks podcast. Um, but long story short, if you just put the Parliament of Rooks in the Facebook search box, I guarantee you'll find us. Um, so feel free, go ahead. Uh, join that group. That's where a lot of the uh, the information with regard to updates and if there's any supporting images for uh, a uh, an episode, we'll be able to post it up there. Um, so that's probably your, your your biggest hub. And of course, everybody knows how to find us on iTunes. On iTunes, right? You can just search out Parliament of Rooks. Um, same thing with uh, with Google Play. Probably what I can do is just put a uh, a link in the show notes, um, you know, to those direct feeds. And then also on on our webpage, um, there's just little. Uh, hot buttons there that you can go ahead and uh, and you know click if you want to get to it directly. Any of these uh, spots, feel free to leave feedback or, as Melanie says, um, you can email us directly at tporpodcast at gmail.com. Bingo. And also over this week, I had kind of a nice thing happen. As Melanie knows, uh, you know, one of my primary inspirations for uh, launching this podcast is the fact that I'm a fan of another comic-related podcast, uh, the Legion of Substitute Podcasters.com. Paul French and Darren Noel, who run that, um, were nice enough a couple weeks ago to have me on and, uh, and basically plug the show. And then this past week, um, you know, Paul listened to our first episode and, and gave us a shout out on that show. Um, so I just wanted to return the favor. Uh, if any of you guys are fans of the Legion of Superheroes, Legion of Substitute Podcasters, phenomenal show. So thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. We appreciate it. Yep. And actually, we did get a little bit of feedback on our second episode uh, with regard to Felix Faust and the Demons 3. Um, one of the, the websites where I'm a member uh, actually is a Legion fan site, legionworld.net. And one of my fellow posters over there, Eric Davis Esther, um, gave us a shout out uh, with regard to our second episode and pointed out the fact that I had remarked upon um, the use of the phrase demons in that story and how that was maybe pushing the comics code a, a, a little bit. He pointed out that actually Felix Faust and the Demons 3, believe it or not, appeared on the episode of the Super Friends um, in the mid-80s when they had become the, uh, I think it was the Super Powers show or something like that. Yeah, Galactic Guardians, I want to say, right? Which is probably a little bit after you were watching the show. That would have been... Yeah, because I didn't even remember the name of it. They (laughs) were the Super Friends for me. Yeah. So Felix Faust actually appears on that show, an episode called The The Case of the Stolen Superpowers, and, you know, he conjures up the Demons 3, but... Interestingly enough, even though it's mid-80s, they're not actually even referred to as demons then. 
Um, they, you know, within the body of that show, they're actually called phantoms. And then later on in the episode, they're, they're called ghosts. Um, so kind of interesting that, you know, the sort of parental watch groups, which were all the rage in the 80s, you know, around cartoons, you know, probably had even a little bit more teeth than the Comics Code Authority because, you know, what, 20 years prior, they were able to get away with the phrase demon. So I thought that was kind of neat. So thanks, Eric. Um, so as I mentioned last episode, uh, we're going to take a break um, from the, uh, the more superhero-focused stories as they interweave with the supernatural and we're going to uh, take a couple steps back and talk about that subgenre that I was referring to as the supernatural detectives. DC Comics has a long history uh, with regard to characters of this type, um, actually going back almost to the very beginning. The very first magazine that DC Comics ever put out, and actually at the time they weren't even uh, DC Comics, I believe uh, at the time they were national periodicals, uh, was a magazine by the name of New Fun Comics. It was called that because up to that time, if a comic book was being published, basically it was reprints of newspaper comics. Um, so they wanted to distinguish themselves from that by putting the word new in the title. You know, <laughs> what? And I guess it was effective because new wasn't everywhere in print at that point. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was yeah, sort of like an advertising gimmick. Um, so yes, yeah, so New Fun Comics number one uh, actually debuted in February of 1935. And initially, it was a sampling of different genres of the time that were popular in newspaper comics. You know, there were a couple humor features, uh, certainly, uh, a couple adventure-type things. Um, you know, I, I think maybe even some adaptations uh, of literary-type material. But the, uh, the first character um, that I'd like to talk about from that era uh, debuted in their sixth issue, a fellow by the name of Dr. Occult. And what Dr. Occult was, was basically... Uh, Sort of two-fisted detective here, a very square-jawed, um, you know, is a Sam Spade type guy, right? Man's man. A man's man, exactly. And uh, he was a creation of a, a pair of creators by the name of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Now, I wanted to bounce this off you because I know uh, you're familiar with some comics creators. Certainly, you would know Stan Lee, I'm imagining. Yeah. And, and you mentioned before that you know Jack Kirby. Yep. Um, but before we got too deep into it, I wanted to see, do you know the name? Siegel and Schuster. Only through you. I've heard you mention them before. Okay. Question then. Uh, what is their most famous creation? <laughs> uh, that I have, I have no idea. Okay. Great. Uh, and then... I, I know their name because of how you're interested in comics. Yeah. I wanted to ask you that basically to get it, sort of feel how the non-comics community views these two people because they're very, very, very important. Probably more important than anyone else in the history of comics, and yet to the general public, sometimes their names are, are not as familiar with people who are more uh, self-promotional, like Stan Lee. People oh, yeah. Who, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, back to Dr. Occult. So as I say, yeah, so very sort of two-fisted detective type hero. Um, but the difference is that he wasn't solving, you know, your mainstream sort of mob crimes. He was actually involved in in cases of a more esoteric nature, a couple of his first earlier arcs, he was involved with werewolves and vampires and that type of thing. But in very short order, December of 1936, it was actually, by that time, New Fun had been retitled More Fun. I guess they had... Woohoo! More Fun! <laughs> more Fun, yeah. They had, you know, ridden the wave of the new and, you know, it sort of, you know, it began selling, so on and so forth. So, yeah, they changed it to More Fun. And in More Fun Comics number 16, um, there was a very... Sharp change in direction for that character. A story arc began called Koth and the Seven. And basically, like I say, up to that point, it was very sort of street-level type cases he was involved in. But in this one, he was contacted by a, a group called the Seven, 
who were these sort of ancient magicians who existed in this sort of netherworld. And they recruited Dr. Cult to fight their centuries-old enemy, Koth. Um, you know, he had been an enemy of humanity in the ancient past. So Dr. Occult is transported to this magical world, and they grant him, very important here, because now up to this time, the entire concept of a superhero didn't exist, they grant him this mystical belt that allows him to fly. They give him a costume, complete with a cape. Um, why? <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you why. The very reason why is because of the creators, Siegel and Schuster. They have in their mind this concept that they've been trying to sell. Um, they've been going to newspaper comics to try to try to get a, you know interest in it. They've been going you know to um, you know national periodicals to try to get in, interest in it. But up until this point, they hadn't been biting. So they're like, all right, well, let's maybe introduce some of these elements you know into our you know currently successful Doctor Occult strip. So long story short, that arc goes through, mm -hmm. and you know it, it comes to an end. And then you know in very short order, you know he's back down you know on the the street level doing you know more traditional type things. He has, he has a partner. Rose Psychic nice. is her name. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Occult and Rose Psychic. I, I guess. So is that actually her last name is Psychic? Well, right. So is Occult and Psychic, are these their real names or are these more like, you know, pseudonyms, whatever? Um, but so Dr. Occult and, you know, his sometime partner, Rose Psychic, ran through more fun through issue number 32 in uh, June of 1938. Um, these stories, you know, even though they, they sound, you know, somewhat enticing, were really only just one or two page stories. You know, oh, that's pretty short. Yeah, pretty short. Well, they're one or two pages, you know, per month. Basically, you would you have an arc, you know, so over, let's say, six issues, you would fight a werewolf, you know, but one page per, you know, so it takes six months to get the whole story how Dr. Occult fought a werewolf. Um, we're kind of glossing over uh, his overall career, but we will loop back around to him probably when we cover the All-Star Squadron. I had mentioned last issue, um, we'd seen a letter from Roy Thomas, the writer, mm -hmm. yep. right, who would go on to do the revival of those Golden Age characters. So many, many years later, you know, he would uh, bring Dr. Occult, you know, back into the public eye. You know, here's a guy who had stopped being published in 1938. It was probably 1984, I want to say, 85, that, uh, that Roy Thomas revived him. So, you know, basically close to, close to 50 years after his last appearance. Um, but from that point, then Dr. Occult became more uh, mainstream, appearing in, um, you know, some Neil Gaiman penned uh, stories, actually. But a little bit of behind-the-scenes history for you, um, coinciding with that last appearance, June 1938, um, his final appearance in More Fun, number 32, was that self-same month, another comic debuted, Action Comics, number one, with a feature created by Siegel and Schuster. Now, let's try to put some of these clues together. Um, basically, here's Siegel and Schuster, who had been working on a square-jawed individual, who, in, during one uh, story arc, you know, gained the ability to fly in a costume with a cape. As I mentioned, they were working on another concept they'd been trying to sell to newspaper comics. And then, as I say, right as Dr. Occult draws to a close, they introduce a new character in Action Comics number one. Take a wild guess, who was their creation? Superman! Exactly. Um, right. So, you know, but now here's the interesting thing, right? You know, so I talked about how names like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are just publicly known. You never even heard of Siegel and Schuster. You know, that's, it's, it's really a crying shame. They're two of the most important people in the history of comics. Yeah, but I didn't, I mean, really, I, I had no idea that that's what they created. Well, and the reason being is that they sort of got um, railroaded by the comics company. You know, for all intents and purposes, they were still kind of young men. I think they, they might have even been 
in their teens when they started their relationship, you know, with national periodicals, and they didn't know anything. They're just two young kids, you know, from New York, and they kind of just like sold this property to them for like pennies. Oh, they're the ones. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it was uh, just hitting me that like they're the ones that sold their character for like next to nothing. Next to nothing, and not they didn't on, make anything off of it. Yeah. Then you know they made a pittance off it, like and actually little. in in recent years, actually the uh, the Jerry Siegel estate has been engaged in some legal battles, you know, to try to recoup you know some of that money that that's owed to them, and finally after all this time. Um, you know, you are going to see the, the credits in every Superman story, you know, created by Jerry Siegel and, and Joe Shuster. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but um, but yes, but for many, many years, you know, they, like I say, languished in obscurity. Not obscurity per se, but like to the outside world, I would say obscurity, mm -hmm. um, you know, because they just made a bad business deal. There we go. But, uh, but anyway, so that, you know, is a little bit of background then about... You know, their, their first character up until the time, you know, somewhat unknown uh, Dr. Occult. So on the heels of that, you know, there were other type characters that, that National Periodical put out sort of in the same vein. Um, there was another fellow, Johnny Peril, who appeared in some of their magazines, uh, Comic Cavalcade. And then I think he was a backup in All-Star Comics, you know, where the, the JSA was appearing. And, uh, and then I think Latter Day, oh, you know, I was going to say, I don't think Latter Day, I know for a fact Latter Day, he appeared in Sensation Comics, matter of fact, because that cover that we took a look at last time around with the guy with the creepy... Oh, with like the characters actually growing out of his fingers? Growing out of his fingers, Ooh. yeah, that, that, was a, uh, that was a Johnny Peril story. So yeah, we'll get into Johnny Peril in a few uh, episodes because, yeah, he's got a whole convoluted backstory that, that we'll get into. Um, but yeah, but that was another example of a supernatural uh, detective from, from DC. But as we, you know, as we mentioned in our initial episode, there's always sort of an ebb and flow with regard to comics history. Um, you know, what's popular one day might be on the way in the next. Um, so as Superman hit, obviously, you know, interest really shifted to superheroes, you know, right on the heels of that. You had Batman, and then you had Wonder Woman, and then you had, you know, a whole slew. And Aquaman. <laughs> yeah, and no, I just, your, your, your boyfriend Aquaman. Um, but, Don't tell my husband. <laughs> but for a long time after that, superheroes really dominated the whole comics publishing industry. Hmm. Um, that went through, as I say, you know, World War II, and then as the quote-unquote golden age, you know, as we talked about, drew to a close in, in the late 40s, suddenly superhero comics were not as lucrative as they had once been. Um, so I'm sure there was a change then. Yeah, there was a change, right, exactly, with regard to genre. Uh, as I mentioned last time around, that anecdote uh, that Roy Thomas tells about how uh, he had been subscribing to All-Star Comics, but suddenly he got one that was All-Star Western. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they uh, they started exploring different genres, uh, you know, like, as I say, Western became big, humor for a time, a couple, you know, early explorations into sci-fi, crime, but then another big thing was horror. One of the really big players on that stage was a fellow by the name of Bill Gaines, he was the son of a fellow by the name of Max Gaines, who had owned almost a partner publishing company to National Periodicals called uh, All American Comics. Basically, they, they sort of shared characters. Um, Max Gaines owned the, the All American side that published, um, for instance, like Green Lantern and, uh, you know, Wildcat. And, uh, you know, I want to say uh, Flash, certainly, Wonder Woman, maybe. Whereas National Periodicals owned the rights to Superman and so on and so forth. and But these two companies basically had a partnership so they could appear in the same stories together. So, mm -hmm. for instance, All-Star Comics was a joint venture where National and, and All-American would publish the JSA where all these characters would appear. Nice. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. But long story short, Max Gaines' son, Bill Gaines, when these different genres were being explored, started his own 
publishing company called EC Comics. Um, it, uh, I think it originally was educational comics because they did things like stories from the Bible, that sort of thing. Um, but in very short order, once these other genres started getting explored, um, they changed their name to entertaining comics. Um, so, it's still EC. Yes, it's still EC, right. Um, so yeah, so he, he, you know, he found his little niche, um, you know, taking a look on Wikipedia, uh, some of the things that he specialized in were, you know, horror, sci-fi, uh, you know, a lot of war comics. Um, you would probably know him because, you know, some of the big titles that EC was putting out were like Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, um, that was a TV show. Yeah, yeah, right. The Crypt Keeper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then also like the Vault of Horror or like, you know, Weird Science or, you know, and a lot of the content in these though was uh, bordering almost, I would say, you know, on the, on the lurid. Actually, you know, honestly, one of the other big things that came out of there and probably one of the things to survive, um, you know, the horror purge was uh, Mad Magazine. Actually, it was, it was an EC-related thing. Yeah, yeah. And this dude, Bill Gaines, had a huge stable of talent that uh, a lot of would eventually go to work for DC. Um, but it just reads like, you know, an overall who's who of comics at the time. And folks like Wally Wood, who's a huge name in the industry, and a couple of the folks, uh, like I say, from Mad Magazine, like, like Jack Davis or John Severin. Joe Orlando, um, who's actually huge in D.C. Uh, we're we're going to get to his stuff in just a couple episodes. Um, but basically, he was the guy who uh, started the whole horror line, you know, a few years later um, in the Bronze Age of D.C. Um, you know, House of Mystery, House of Secrets. Uh, matter of fact, Kane, the, you know, from whence we get our title, Parliament of Rooks, uh -huh. was a, a Joe Orlando character. And, uh, and actually, somebody that you would know because we just recently went to uh, his museum, Frank Frazetta, who ah. used to work for, uh, for EC. Um, so yeah, really big deal at the time. And, you know, I would say almost dominated the market with regard to some of these fringe genres, you know, certainly crime, certainly horror. Um, so much to the fact that, that um, DC Comics, within that sort of time frame, early 50s, was, uh, you know, taking note of that and sort of introduced a couple characters of their own that sort of fell into that genre. Um, one of the, uh, uh, the early things they had was a fellow by the name of Dr. Terrence 13, Ghostbreaker. Um, he was basically sort of a, a skeptic character, I guess you'd say. Um, you know, he would get involved in these mysteries or whatever, but his whole thing was that he did not believe across the board in, in anything whatsoever supernatural. You know, he always believed there was a rational explanation behind anything that he was investigating. And hence his name. Hence his name, right. Ghostbreaker, exactly. Another character that was certainly inspired, you know, by the, the wave at EC was uh, the Phantom Stranger, who actually debuted in his own eponymous title right out of the gate. Phantom Stranger number one was in August of 1952. Uh, he was a creation of uh, writer John Broom and uh, a name you probably do know, uh, Carmine Infantino, the, mm -hmm. the artist, right? because yeah, you met him. Because I met him, exactly. Um, and he was... Uh, Initially, he becomes much more popular in, in the Bronze Age, but his limited Silver Age run, uh, six issues, matter of fact, issue six, we actually took a look at in our very first episode because it was a cover comparison for that JLA. Uh, remember the Phantom Stranger was trying to hold the door closed? Oh yeah, the, air, the sky door. The sky door, right. Um, you know, but initially, uh, he wasn't as supernatural as he would later become. He was sort of just a mysterious fellow who would get involved in supernatural type uh, menaces. You know, he would just show up very mysteriously in his trench coat and hat and, you know, and so on and so forth. He was very similar to other characters being published at the time by, you know, some rival companies. Charlton Comics had a character called the Mysterious Traveler and, and Harvey Comics. Uh, it was probably most known for kind of little kid stuff like Casper the Friendly Ghost and like Richie Rich. Um, oh, I but, used to like Richie Rich. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but they had a character called the Man in Black 
And, uh, and basically, like, they were all sort of a, a similar type character, you know, just these mysterious guys who would come up and, and you know, and, and get involved in, in uh, outre type cases. Um, but Phantom Stranger, for some reason, just never found its audience and only lasted six issues. The last one actually came out in June of 53. Um, but right in the midst of this, as I say, as all these genres became more popular and, you know, and accordingly, uh, more and more graphic, as it became more violent, um, like I say, right in, in this environment, that's when uh, Frederick Wortham published his book, Seduction of the Innocent. Um, you know, he was taking a look at different forms of entertainment um, that were contributing to juvenile delinquency, um, but he drew a direct parallel between some of these more graphic comic stories and juvenile delinquency. As he publishes his book, as I say, this sort of caught a zeitgeist at the time and, you know, spurred on the creation of a Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency. And they launched, you know, all these hearings in 1954 to really take a closer look at, uh, at what was happening. We talked about this a little bit in some previous episodes, but um, long story short, as the Senate subcommittee began interviewing a lot of the, the publishers, um, what they decided to do was basically self-police. They set up an organization that we talked about called the uh, Comics Magazine Association of America, basically the Comics Code Authority. And what it was was basically a self-policing organization. You know, they set up a, a code of ethics and standards, you know, for the industry um, through which any books that they were going to put out, uh, you know, had to, had to pass muster. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that they laid down, uh, you know, as far as, as regulations were uh, the fact that, and uh, I'm quoting this directly, that policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions could not be uh, portrayed in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they have requirements that in every instance, good shall triumph over evil. And, uh, and they discouraged, quote unquote, instances of law enforcement officers dying as a result of criminal activities. Um, so really just sort of natural things that might occur in a story. Um, they said, no, 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 no. comics Yeah. If they said, if kids see this, you know, bad stuff's going to happen. It's all over. All right. And they put up restrictions around, you know, portrayal of kidnapping, concealed weapons. Um, there couldn't be any excessive violence. Uh, they couldn't have anything that was, quote, lurid, unsavory, or gruesome illustrations. And then across the board, things like vampires, werewolves, ghouls, and zombies couldn't be portrayed. And then additionally... <laughs> comics that had the word horror or terror in their titles banned altogether. So you can well imagine what sort of effect this had on, on EC comics. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's the, their whole line. <laughs> their whole line. Right. So yeah. So their comics side of the house was basically shut down. And then Mad Magazine, which had started as a comic, basically had to be revamped to be more tabloid size so they could avoid it and say, well, we're not bound by those regulations. <laughs> right. We're going to make it bigger. This is no longer a comic. This is a magazine. Um, so yeah. So they were able to skirt by the, uh, um, the comics code authority. But all this being said, um, you know, this is all sort of background then for what we're going to be discussing tonight, um, because right in the midst of this, in January of 1954, another character who is super obscure, I mean, literally you can mention this to probably nine out of ten comics fans and they would have no idea who this guy is, um, but for a very limited run, right in the midst of this backlash, a fellow by the name of Misto the Magician Detective was introduced in Detective Comics. Detective Comics, um, you may or may not know, is the magazine in which Batman uh, primarily appeared. I did not know that, but it seems to make sense. Right, exactly. The Dark Knight Detective. Uh, he was introduced back in May of 1939 uh, in Detective Comics number 27. 
And as the years went on, obviously Batman became hugely popular, um, but the remainder of Detective uh, was used for, you know, sort of backup features, other detectives sort of thematically related. Some of the things that would have been appearing in Detective Comics around this time uh, were features like Roy Raymond TV Detective, obviously in the early 50s. TV was a huge deal. So what this guy was, was basically he had his own TV show where he would debunk, similar to Dr. 13, people claiming supernatural things, you know, like, uh, or even scientific things. You know, I can convert water into gasoline. Well, Roy Raymond would have him on his show and say, aha, here's the trick, you know, that, that type thing. Or another character was uh, Captain Compass. Uh, who, who solved, <laughs> you're laughing at his name, yeah. yeah, he solved sort of like nautically related crimes, you know, he was a, he was a sea captain, but he, you know, if there was, you know, crime, uh, you know, out on the ocean or whatever, you know, Captain Compass would get involved and, and sort of, uh, you know, lend his expertise to that. So in this environment, as I say, this new character, uh, Misto the Magician Detective, was introduced in Detective Comics number 203 um, from January of 1954. So that is going to be the first story that we take a look at tonight. So let's just pull that up here. Um, we're actually going to go ahead and give the, the cover a miss. Um, it's just a, uh, as I say, as a backup feature, obviously the cover is not going to be Misto related. Uh, you know, it's just your standard Batman cover. Um, so we'll just skip over that and go right to the story itself. And as I say, you know, in this particular issue, you had one Batman story, you had a Captain Compass, you had a Roy Raymond, and then, you know, sort of back in the, in the pages, um, you know, we come to an eight-page backup for Misto Magician Detective. We begin on a uh, half-page splash, once again, thematically sort of introducing it, and uh, our captain reads, Is he a mystic, possessing the strange powers of the supernatural? Or is he an artist of illusion, an expert at sleight of hand? Who is this man? who strikes terror into the heart of the underworld with incredible eye-popping feats of magic. Here, for the first time, is the inside story of the new and amazing Misto Magician Detective. And we see, uh, we see Misto very much in the Mandrake tradition. You know, there mm -hmm. he is in this sort of, uh, you know, formal wear with bow tie. And, and a cape. And, and a cape, right, and, and pencil-thin mustache. And he's appearing in a puff of darkened smoke, as, as two criminals, you know, are recoiling, saying, Look, my gun turned into playing cards. And the other fellow's saying, And mine's become a rabbit. We, we must be going loony. <laughs> so we begin our story uh, with gunshots resounding along the waterfront of a great city as a lone patrolman battles three gangsters. And uh, we see them fleeing as uh, gangster number one says, Come on, we got all the jewelry we can carry. Head for the power launch before more cops get here. And suddenly, in a nearby doorway, a puff of smoke appears and... Hey, who's that? Where did he come from? Who cares? Blast him! And we see in the puff of smoke our... Uh, Mandrake. <laughs> yeah, right. Mandrake <laughs> or, or Misto, as we know from our, our, our splash. Um, the gangster's saying, He ain't even got a gun! Blast him, I said! But in the very next instant, from the stranger's seemingly empty hands, Yikes! Boyds! Where'd they come from? Boyds. <laughs> Boyds. Did <laughs> <laughs> you see that? As, uh, as doves fly out from Misto's hands, the mysterious stranger gestures again as a coil of rope appears and snakes upward. And the gangster's like, Am I dreaming? Look! And a moment later, from up above, a gigantic figure descends the rope. We see sort of a uh, uh, almost Indian-looking fellow, you know, with a scimitar and a turban, uh, descending the rope, as the gangsters are saying, No, it ain't possible! Come on, we must be going crazy! Yeah, let's get out of here, fast! And, uh, you know, as they scramble away in Three Stooges fashion, uh, the sirens herald the arrival of a pursuing squad car as uh, 
as they give it to the cops, you know, in frantic mode, saying, Take us to jail! Do anything you want! Just keep those two hocus-pocus guys away from us! And the cops are like, Hocus-pocus? I don't know what you're talking about, boys, but it sure sounds as though they gave you a rough time. So we turn the page, and uh, we see on another night, a citywide alarm goes out for Gunboy Joe Trimble, escape killer. And we see Gunboy up on the roof, uh, thinking, He's gotta be careful. Every cop in town is looking for me, and I gotta finish the job I set out to do. And uh, he makes his way down <laughs> to an apartment on the fourth floor where we see a, a respectable man uh, looks up and says, Trimble! Yeah, Judge, I told you I'd come back to get you. Obviously, he must have sent Trimble up upriver. But again, a muffled explosion followed by a puff of smoke. Ah, who are you, Buster? As once again, we see Misto. Or Mandrake. <laughs> Mandrake appearing before him. Whoever you are, you should have never showed up here. As Trimble lets loose a volley of, of uh, handgun fire. But the uh, image of Misto just shatters because it was just a mirror. He says, uh, I must be seeing things. I'm right behind you, Trimble. Ah, so there you are. He turns around and sees Misto there. He fires another volley. Your bullets don't bother Misto, Trimble. See, I caught the bullets, all three of them. As Trimble looks in astonishment. No man can do that. I'm not finished, says Misto. Here, I'll give you your bullets back to you. As he throws them at him, and they explode midair with a, a blam-pow crack. Which, uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't think bullets actually explode, so I, I don't know why that's happening. Well, Misto's bullets certainly do. Yes, they're magic bullets. Snap, crackle, pop. Yeah. <laughs> Snap, crackle, car. No. <laughs> and, uh, and Triple says, no, don't, don't shoot at me. And, uh, and the police, hearing the gunfire, come rushing in. Look, it's Gunboy Trimble. And Trimble's just in disbelief. He caught the bullets and threw them back at me. And the cops, well aware of what's been going on, said, Mr. the Magician. And he helped us again. So we cut to a uh, sort of transition panel. Uh, we sort of see Misto surrounded by a, a puff of smoke, basically the fog of time, as he's surrounded by calendar pages, you know, counting back the, the years from 1953 to 51, 49, 47, 45. Uh, as we go back, and a little bit of flashback, we see south of the Himalayas, a plane making its way over the vast tabled land of Tibet, piloted by Rick Carter, Wildcat Flyer. And uh, we see Rick up in the sky, way up in the boa blue yonder, he's saying, everything seems so peaceful. Ah, what a life. But as he looks down, he sees, uh, wait a minute, what's happening down there? Three men after one, I'd better sit down and help him. We see on the ground a, uh, once again, a sort of Indian-type fellow, turbaned, you know, sort of beard, almost like, you know, the, the fakir-type fellow. And uh, he's, being, he's being followed by three bandits that are there firing at him. So Rick lands his plane with a, as he bumps to a landing and uh, starts firing a volley of his own at the, at the hill bandits. They'll get that old man unless I can draw their fire. And he, he nails one of them. One down. But as he goes to fire the second fellow, bam, he whacks his head on a rock. Uh, Rick, get it together. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so cautiously, the two other bandits approach the fallen figure, um, saying, he's still alive. Then kill him. We must resume our chase after the old man. But suddenly, two shots ring out, and the bandits crumble to the ground, and two more men approach the group. And these two men are our original quarry, the bearded fellow, and a, a very, very tall sort of Indian man, uh, shirtless, um, but also turbaned. And our, our older man says, excellent shooting, Siki. Siki? Yeah, that's what it looks like. <laughs> In another second, this pilot who saved me would have been dead himself. Carry him to the hideout and will care for his wounds. I owe him my life, Siki. He drew their fire, giving you time to come to my aid. 
So much later, in a cave deep in the hills, we see Rick in uh, convalescence as the old man is, is handing him a potion, saying, Drink this and you'll be all right. Those murderous bandits are dead, thanks to Siki's expert marksmanship. And Rick's saying, You reversed the rescue act, eh? Instead of me saving you, you saved me. Say, you speak perfect English. And the old man says, I spent many years in the United States, but that's neither here nor there. You risk your life to save mine, my son. Such acts should be rewarded. I'm not a wealthy man. I cannot reward you with money, but I can give you knowledge. Now observe. There's nothing in my hand, correct? Right, says Rick. What's all this about? Deft twist of the wrist and presto! Now what do you see? A bird, says Rick. Where did it come from? How did you do it? It's actually a homing pigeon, which I carry comfortably inside my clothes. It can be produced in an instant by sleight of hand. So you're a magician. Yes, a practitioner of illusion. Observe. Huh? What's happening? Says Rick as a sort of yellow cloud emerges around the man. In an instant... Oh, sorry, not yellow. Apparently it's a poor coloring, because as the caption reads, in an instant, the white puff of smoke vanishes, and so does the magician. Where'd he go? He actually disappeared right before my eyes, says Rick. Yes, Sahib, says the sort of tall, shirtless man that we'd seen prior. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, Siki, right? We knew his name. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm over here, behind you, says the old man. Uh, the smoke was caused by one of these pellets I dropped. Curtained by the smoke, it was simple for me to slip away, unseen by you. Great guns, says Rick. This is amazing. I'd rather know these tricks than have all the money in the world. It's wonderful. Then, said the old man, I shall teach you many tricks, my son. I shall show you the secrets of ancient mysticism, the art of sleight of hand, the method of creating an illusion. Thus, in the ensuing days, the young pilot spends hours exercising his fingers for the deft work of sleight of hand. Uh, obviously contorting his hands, as we saw last issue, in, in ways that you believe they cannot. <laughs> he's yes. he's going to become a regular Felix Faust. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of people growing all over the place. Right. Blast it, says Rick. I failed again as he's dropping his cards, trying to do card tricks. Patience, my son. Patience and practice. Remember, you've just commenced. Now, we'll try it again. Watch me closely, and I shall perform this trick more slowly. So, we see the montage as the weeks pass, and Rick Carter learns one trick after another, and, under the old man's guidance, masters each one. The fabulous Indian rope trick! A rope becoming a live thing, ascending into the air under its own power! Ah, says the old man, so it appears. The illusion is perfect. Now, Siki, let's show him how we really do it. As they show him the secret, see? The rope was pulled up by Siki, who was hiding in the howdah? It's a howdah. I have no idea. <laughs> All right. well, Looks like it should say chowder. <laughs> we'll look that up later. Um... When I gestured, I tossed him a thin length of wire attached to the end of the rope. Siki then simply pulled the rope up toward him. The point is, the illusion was there. You saw the rope ascend under its own power because you were fooled into thinking so. Always remember this. Make the illusion complete, and any trick is yours. Uh, So several months pass, and then one day, uh, we see the old man in a bit of a coughing spell. (coughs) I'm very ill, my son. I'm happy, however, that I I held out this long... (coughs) For I've made you an expert in the magical arts. Use them well to benefit your fellow man. Siki will stay with you. He's a brave man and as strong as ten. <coughs> Farewell. <laughs> I go now. Your voice. Oh <laughs> he's dying. What do you want? <laughs> as, as we see, because Rick says he's dead. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and Siki says, yes, he breathes his last. So a few months later, uh, we flash forward. Upon returning to America, we see Rick donning his tuxedoed outfit. I'll be out for a couple of hours, Siki, he says, using the name Misto. I'm going to perform another benefit performance at the orphanage. Wish me luck. No need to. 
Your magic shows have become very popular around the city. But soon after, as the amateur magician waits on a corner for the taxi, Great guns! Those gangsters are trying to kill those vegetable vendors! As we see a sort of old-fashioned gangster car rolling down the street, you know, rat-a-tat-tat, Tommy guns a-blazin'. But instantly, Hey, there's a guy out in front of us shooting flames at us! Careful, you're swerving! As the gangsters run off the road and sort of crash their car, He nearly wrecked us! Get him! As they start firing their machine guns again, rat-a-tat-tat, down the street, but Misto oblivious to their bullets, just sort of disappears into a puff of yellow smoke. And the machine gun bullets hit nothing but emptiness. We're shooting at nothing. The guy's gone. So we see Misto appear next to the uh, the vegetable vendor, uh, reassuring him. You're all right, my friend. The police arrive. And seconds later, uh, we see the vegetable vendor speaking to the cops. A man dressed in a strange way. He saved our lives and stopped the Kirk's car, and then he disappeared, as if by magic. Huh? Says the cop. Well, anyway, we've got these birds. Let's take them away. And so, after the performance of the orphanage, uh, we see a final closing panel in Misto's dressing room, um, as he's sitting there with Siki, saying, I found out tonight, Siki, that magic can be a big aid to the police. From now on, Rick Carter operates a small wildcat airplane business, and his other self, Misto, will be right in the thick of the fight against crime. But, unfortunately for Misto and Siki, um, that fight against crime wasn't going to last too long. Because, as I say, they debuted in Detective Comics number 203 from January of 1954. And, you know, in just a few short months later, everything hit the fan, you know, as I say, with regard to uh, Senate subcommittee hearings, you know, against juvenile delinquency. Um, so he actually only lasted, I, I believe, 10 stories, um, 203 to 2, yeah, 10 stories, because his final appearance was actually Detective Comics number 212 in October of 1954. Um, the uh, Comics Code Authority was set up in September of 54, so you figure, you know, cover date of a comic doesn't always correspond to actual publishing date, so let's say his final publication date was uh, three months prior, so July, right as they knew everything was coming down the pike. I don't know necessarily that there was a direct correlation um, to him stopping, because, you know, at the same time, actually, DC Comics was looking to uh, cut a few of their pages, you know, out of their magazines. Uh, up to that time, Detective Comics uh, was actually 44 pages, and right around that time they were scaling back to 36, so they needed to trim 8 pages, but perhaps if they were looking for 8 pages to trim, like I say, a supernatural-oriented feature, you know, would have been, uh, you know, first on, the, uh, yeah, first on the chopping block. Um, so that's all she wrote for Misto, um, you know, with regard to the Silver Age. He did have one more appearance, actually, um, in Detective Comics number 500, um, a sort of anniversary issue uh, from... Uh, uh, 1981, um, but that was basically all the characters who had ever appeared in Detectives, you know, were thrown together for a big jamboree. So yeah, Captain Compass came back and Roy Raymond and, and yeah, for one more appearance missed though. But uh, <laughs> just a footnote in the overall, uh, you know, history of comics, uh, really, really obscure character. And another sort of obscure character uh, was a guy by the name of Mark Merlin. And of all those characters, I would say he probably debuted the latest in the game, he first appeared in August of 59 in an anthology series called House of Secrets. Um, and what House of Secrets was, um, basically, there was a handful of magazines uh, that DC put out around that time, uh, House of Mystery, Tales of the Unexplained, and basically they told stories um, with non-recurrent characters, just sort of month-by-month, uh, month, sort of like little twist stories, sort of M. Night Shyamalan type things, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. But around that time, um, a sort of edict came down from the DC editorial offices um, from a fellow named Erwin uh, Donenfeld, who had been noticing a trend in, uh, in cinema towards sci-fi and, and the fantastic. And basically he was saying, I want to see more elements like that in my magazines. 
Um, so around that time, you'd see a lot more aliens and Superman, and, and believe it or not, even in Batman, like a, to a title where it totally doesn't work at all. Yeah, that, that would be difficult. Yeah. But another thing that came from this edict was the introduction of the first recurring character in one of these anthology series, that being Mark Merlin. We talked earlier in the episode about a couple characters like, you know, Roy Raymond or Terrence Thirteen. Um, the way that Mark Merlin differed from them is that those characters across the board patently did not believe in the supernatural. You know, their whole shtick was that they were debunking claims of the supernatural. Mark Merlin, however, was sort of more open to that. We'll see in the first story his sort of mission statement is to, to examine the unexplained and determine whether or not it's rational or, or whether he cannot explain it and therefore, you know, is supernatural. Um, another thing that distinguishes the Mark Merlin stories from, say, something like the Misto story we just read is the quality of the art. Um, oh, good. It's got to be better. <laughs> it is. Uh, the guy who does it is a guy by the name of uh, Mort Meskin, who is actually one of my favorite artists uh, from the Golden Age. He worked on features like, uh, and this will mean nothing to you, but like Vigilante and, uh, and Wildcat, Johnny Quick. And he has... You a... are correct. <laughs> <laughs> and he has almost a cinematic approach to his artwork. Um, you know, he lists some of his own inspirations, like Orson Welles in, in Citizen Kane. Hmm. Um, you know, so as we go into this, yeah, really look for those, like, um, you know, long shots and, you know, like widescreen type thing. You know, it's, you know, it's still silver agey, but at the same time, uh, just head and shoulders above what we had seen in the Misto story. Cool. Um, so the first Mark Merlin story we're going to tackle is his introduction, uh, as I say, from House of Secrets number 23 in August of 59. Unfortunately, uh, we don't know who uh, wrote the script, um, but as I say, it's penciled by Mort Meskin, uh, inking himself uh, with letters by Irish Schnapp. And, uh, and yet again... Schnapp! Uh, <laughs> Schnapper car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But yet again, uh, we have no credit for the colorist. Uh, you know, perhaps, I, you know, may, I, I'm learning a little something, perhaps they didn't credit <laughs> colorists back in the Silver Age. Or perhaps it was just more of a production type thing, you know, I'm not sure. So in this first story, um, the cover is not, in fact, a Mark Merlin-related thing. Uh, some nice artwork, actually, by a guy, uh, Bernard Bailey, uh, who did the Spectre back in the Golden Age. But uh, like I say, just sort of a generic cover. Uh, the only thing that would indicate any Mark Merlin content is just in the very bottom of the, uh, the title box here on the cover, um, it just says, Extra, a Mark Merlin Mystery. So we begin on the first page with a half-page splash. Weird mountain-dwelling monsters, flying inanimate objects, a hidden world containing fantastic one-celled creatures. Which of these is true, and which a figment of wild imagination? It's my job as a supernatural sleuth to find out when I scout Earth's strangest secrets. Ooh. Yes, and we see Mark Merlin dressed in what appears to be spelunking gear, uh, sort of deep down in a cave, firing upon these... Uh, Eyeballs? Yeah, right, these big floating... Oh, you know what, they're probably the one-celled creatures from the narration. And he's thinking, good grief, all my bullet does to that one-celled creature. There you go. <laughs> one-celled creature is divided in two. Um, and we get the little subtitle there, a Mark Merlin mystery. Mm -hmm. So we cut to the story proper. As a 1950s woman is exiting what appears to be his uh, investigation office, and she's saying, Mr. Merlin, how can I ever thank you for proving that my old house isn't really haunted? <laughs> and Mark <laughs> says, just stop believing every silly legend you hear, Mrs. Phipps. That's <laughs> a certain bedside manner, does Mark. And so he, oh, breaking the fourth wall, says to us, Scenes like this are a common occurrence in my office. You see, my specialty is a so-called supernatural, in which I've become an expert. And then he's talking to us directly. Generally speaking, there's three types of cases I receive. The most common one being supernatural, quote-unquote events which have a perfectly natural explanation. 
For example, take the case my secretary Elsa introduced to me one day last year. Let me see a flashback as Elsa is saying, Mark, this is Mr. Wakely, uranium hunter. <laughs> I hunt the world's most dangerous element. <laughs> right. uh, he claims that he and the other miners saw strange monsters on a mountainside. And Mr. Wakely says, Maybe you'll think I'm crazy, Mr. Merlin, but it's true. I saw them myself. So Mark continues his uh, discussion with us. Immediately, I booked a plane passage and we were soon on our way. Because that's certainly the most logical thing to do. Oh, you said you saw it? I'm out. Let, yeah. let me go. <laughs> let me book a plane. Um, <laughs> so, um, so they're flying and, you know, from the plane we hear. Every morning, just after the miners arise, uh, the monsters appear out of nowhere. And, and calm yourself, Mr. Wakely. We'll be at the minefields by this evening. That night, we waited in one of the tents used by the uranium hunters. And then suddenly, the sun came peering over the distant hills. There they are now! It's true, Mark, true! We see these sort of gigantic shadows, you know, cast on the, on the mountainside. I've seen those beasts for the last time. I'm getting out of here. No, no, wait, Mark shouts after the, the fleeing miners. Those aren't actually monsters you're seeing, only shadows of ordinary birds. Huh? What do you mean? I gave them a natural explanation for what seemed a supernatural occurrence. As Mark explains, what you're seeing is a freak refraction of the dawn sun's rays casting the shadow of birds and distorting them on the mountainside. Now Mark talking to us again. The second most common type of quote-unquote occult occurrence is man-made, created as a rule in order to perpetuate a hoax. The Cole Museum incident is a case in point. Do you recall the newspaper reports about certain objects in the museum suddenly becoming airborne? We see another flash. I, do you recall that? I, 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 miss, no. I missed that article. Uh, we see the flashback as the museum curator's telling him, It happens at the oddest hours, Mr. Merlin. Suits of mail, those metal figures of legendary birds and beasts, they start flying about as if they'd come alive. Incredible, says Merlin. And here, this art, this is an example of what I'm talking about. The sort of uh, Orson Welles type deep shot mm -hmm. going on. Really uh, really head and shoulders above a lot of the contemporary stuff. Yeah, all this artwork actually is much better yeah. than Misto. Yeah. So naturally, the museum curator continues, with visitors being scared away, I'll simply have to sell the place. Sell a museum? <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, wait, wait what? <laughs> I know someone who wants to buy it and turn it into a skating rink. Or a parking lot, either way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that you can find out what's causing it all? I'll do my best, Mr. Cole, says Merlin. I'll stay here until something happens. So what happens is Elsa and I made ourselves comfortable for a long vigil. Uh, but that very night, look, says Elsa, Mark, that, that figure of a mythical rock, it's taking off. The next instant, all pandemonium broke loose. Mark, this is insane. Let's get out of here before we're killed. As, as yes, truly, like we see helmets and suits of armor flying about. Uh, wait, Elsa, haven't you noticed? All the flying objects are made of metal. Why, yes, that wooden Indian and that totem pole don't seem to be moving at all. This gives me a hunch, Elsa. I think I know where to find the answer. And Mark's hunch pays off as the following morning he breaks open a wall <laughs> and finds powerful hidden electromagnets. They attracted the metal objects, making them seem to fly. But who would want to play this hoax on me? asked the curator. Your manager, I believe, is the only one who had the opportunity to install those electromagnets. Joss? But why? Joss. <laughs> Not a very 1950s name. But it was easier to find out uh, when I grabbed Joss. I was paid to do it by Danton, the man who wants to buy it for a <laughs> skating rink. Ah. Joss was fat enough, but now we have Danton. Yeah. Of course, if the scheme had worked, he could have bought the place for a song. So then we flash back to Merlin in present day. Uh, finally, we come to the third type of occurrence, the type I classify in this drawer as the question mark file. <laughs> I think and, these are going to be the fun ones. Yes, he's pulling open his, uh, his drawer with a... Uh, a little question mark on the on the file cabinet. 
One such case occurred in Ridgely Hills, where an earthquake had opened a network of underground caves, bringing tourists in by the hundreds. And we see the flashback deep in the cave. That passage leads to caves we haven't mapped yet, so I can't guide you any further. Let's go part of the way anyway. So as the guide leads the sightseers about 20 yards into the unmapped cave, Good grief! Look at those huge round eyes! They don't belong to any animal I've ever seen! <laughs> guide, shine your flashlight on it! And uh, yeah, we see the, uh, the one-celled organism from the splash page. What kind of creature is that? Who cares? Let's get out of here. Um, that very same day, the owner summoned me to investigate. Mr. Lemon, offhand, I'd say this was the earmarks of a corny hoax. We'll expose it and hurry before my whole tourist trade is lost. Before long, Elsa and I were plumbing the depths of the caves until, hmm, as they're looking at a big crack in the wall, the earthquake left the cave walls full of cracks. Any loud noise may cause an instant collapse. I'm afraid I'll have to leave you behind, Elsa. Too dangerous for a girl. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, of <laughs> but, course. Uh, but Mark, don't worry. I'll be as careful as I can. All right, Mark. I'll keep my fingers crossed. I hadn't gone far before I saw it. The quake scene, a strange odor seeping out of it, making me dizzy. Helplessly, I began to black out, and I felt myself falling through the seam. Indeed he does. When I regained consciousness, where am I? This is in an underground chamber. This looks like a, like a city of giant hornet's nests and great guns. Hey, wow, that must have been a thing. We saw Rick Carter say great guns, too. Um, all at once, he hears a loud, chattering sound. Those one-celled creatures coming out of the nests. What are they? Where do they come from? <laughs> Probably some prehistoric freak of nature. Instead of evolving into many-celled beings like animals and humans, they simply grew up as single-celled life. In that same instant, I realized something else. They're all moving toward the outer cave. Since they've already sent out a scout, they're probably... scout. <laughs> they're probably now preparing to enter the outside in force. I must stop them somehow. How would he know if they've sent out a scout? I have no idea. <laughs> but just then, uh, behind him, he hears a chattering sound. <laughs> One of them after me. Hope I remember to load my gun. I took dead aim, but when I fired... Oh no! It divided into two when my bullet hit it. Just like, like an amoeba. There's no way to stop these things. They're indestructible. Abruptly, an idea struck me. Wait, if these creatures are nothing but grown-up single-celled amoebas, I may have the answer. I remember, back in my biology class, that any sudden vibration of the slide killed the microscopic amoeba. So maybe the big vibration of a rock slide will scare off the giant-sized amoeba. And uh, he frees a rock, causing a sort of mini avalanche. It worked! They're retreating, giving me a chance to get back through that seam. Halfway through, the same overpowering odor in the cave struck me. But before I blacked out... Any loud sound will cause the earth to shift and seal up the seam. Must, must fire before... As he falls, firing his gun. When I again regain consciousness... Mark, are you all right? The seam, it's sealed up. What happened? As Elsa comes running down the hill. <laughs> I, er, I'm not sure, Elsa. Either I had the worst nightmare of my life, or, or... As we cut to our final panel. Perhaps now you can understand why I list such cases under the heading of question mark. You see, I'm not really sure it actually happened. Are you? Bum, bum, bum. Not sure what happened. <laughs> like, then he sealed the cave. He says any loud sound will but cause... But there was a, a weird odor, remember? He blacked out. He blacked had out. had a weird dream, and then he woke up. Oh, uh, it and... could have been all a hallucination. Yeah, that, that dude has got some he's got some gaps in logic there. <laughs> well, that's why it goes in the question mark file. Perhaps that's his cold case. Perhaps we'll revisit it later on. 
So that's the rather ignoble introduction of Mark Merlin, and he would continue on in that fashion for several more years, uh, basically investigating the supernatural and you know even occasionally sci-fi. He had a couple run-ins with with aliens and that type of thing. So he uh, goes along with the trend then. Yeah, right, exactly. Of the late 1950s, early 1960s, um, but throughout it all, we never got any idea of who the character actually was. Uh, it wasn't actually until House of Secrets number 58. Uh, from January 1963, where the authors delved into his origins a little bit. Well, uh, why so many years later? Well, okay, so good question. So basically, um, you take a look at that time, January 1963, our past couple episodes, you know, we took a look at Justice League. So we were talking about the ebb and flow of, of narrative trends. So at that time, superheroes were back on the rise. Okay. Uh, and a big thing with superheroes is like, how do they get this way? So sure, they've got this recurring character who for the most part is a cipher, but even that, they're like, hey, origin stories are selling. Let's, you know, let's tell Mark Merlin's origin. Um, so yeah, so it was in a story called Trial by Fire, uh, as I say, from House of Secrets 58, and that'll be the next thing we're looking at. Okay. Taking a look at comics.org, um, there's a little bit of a question around the authorship. They attribute it possibly to Arnold Drake. Pencils again by Mort Meskin, uh, with inks by George Rousseau. All right, so first things first, let's uh, take a look at the cover. And uh, as I say, you know, back and forth between uh, non-recurrent cover features and then, you know, Mark Merlin. Uh, this one happens to be a Mark Merlin. What is that? <laughs> right. So we see a formal arrangement, uh, you know, in a fancy table, you know, with a candelabra, um, behind which there are three, I guess, anthropomorphic creatures, you know, one with a, a leopard's head, one with a fox head, and one with a... Uh, beak. Right. Hey, let's call it a rook. <laughs> An anthropomorphic rook. No, 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 no. Rooks have gray beaks. Gray beaks? Okay. So I don't know what this is. You know, some sort of some sort of bird, but basically... Green-beaked creature. Right. A leopard, a fox, and a bird, and they're pointing at what appears to be a very young Mark Merlin. He's wearing a you know, sort of collegiate sweater vest, um, and they're saying, Mark Merlin, you are charged with crimes against the unknown as... Mark is thinking, and my defender is in league with them. I haven't got a chance. A two-part suspense story featuring the origin of Mark Merlin, sleuth of the supernatural. Dun, dun, dun. Right, and, uh, and behind him and his uh, you know, nefarious defender, uh, we see what I'm imagining is Elsa, mm -hmm. very much in surprise, you know, sort of a, uh, <gasps> yeah, open mouth gasp. All right, so let's turn to the story proper which begins right on the first page. Uh, so Mark Merlin, sleuth of the supernatural in trial by fire. And, uh, and a full page splash as, you know, we have a superimposed image of Mark Merlin pointing right at us saying, like most of you, I scoffed at those who believed in shadowy beings and fantastic powers that lie beyond the threshold of our own senses. But life had an eerie lesson in store for me. When it was over, I no longer was so sure where our world ended and where we crossed into the land of the unknown. And like I say, that's a forefront image because behind that we see what I'm imagining is a flashback as the fox-headed creature, you know, is pointing Merlin to three flaming doors saying, here's your first test, Mark Merlin. You must walk through one of those flaming doors. You have 60 seconds to decide which one. And Mark's thinking, I was told there might be some way to survive this test. What can it be? So we turn the page to the beginning of the story proper. It's a busy day in the ancestral home of Mark Merlin, world's leading authority on the supernatural, as uh, he and Elsa are moving boxes around in, the, in their warehouse. Here's the last of those things I moved from the city vault to my private museum, Elsa. Check off the numbers. One, two, three. Say, number four is missing. What? Says Elsa. Mark, number four is the Miro medallion. Oh no! If that thing's been lost, there's no telling what might happen to the person who finds it. We better call the police to help us find it. So shortly after Captain Reeves of the police arrives. 
I respect your reputation, Mr. Merlin, but do you really expect me to believe a mere medallion possesses disastrous powers? I must convince you of it, says Mark, or the death of an innocent person might be on my hands. Listen, Captain, some years ago, while I was still at college, we go into flashback, yeah, yeah. So we see the flashback. I spent my vacations working for my uncle, the mighty Merlin, one of the great stage magicians. And so we see the mighty Merlin on stage. And now, my youthful assistant, Miss Elsa, will close the door of her cabinet, and it will be raised into the air. And with a puff of smoke, that happens. Uh, and now, she opens the door, and you can observe that she's still inside the cabinet. But watch closely. As the smoke clears, presto! Miss Elsa's gone, as the audience bursts into applause. The answer was simple, but clever, as we see young Mark Merlin as his uncle's stagehand. What the audience doesn't realize, Elsa, is that you escape from the back of the cabinet before it's lifted into the air. The door opens automatically, and that concealed projector flashes a lifelike image of you onto a screen in the cabinet. Your uncle's a brilliant deception artist. Deception artist. Um, I suppose you'll follow in his footsteps. I don't know what I'll do after I graduate this year, but I doubt I'd enjoy a career in magic. After all, magic is nothing but skilled fakery. All of it, Mark? Says his uncle, suddenly appearing, eavesdropping. I wonder. Sure, says Mark. Houdini, the greatest stage magician of all, exposed supernatural quacks all his life. And so did I, says his uncle, but we did it for the same reason, to get rid of the phonies so the true mysteries of life can better be understood. Come with me tonight and I'll show you. And so, that night, and many others to follow, I accompanied my uncle as he exposed the frauds and deceivers. As we see a sort of flashback at a, at a seance, as, as the mighty Merlin instructs young Mark, turn on the lights, Mark, quickly. Ha! Ah, there's your spirit message, lady. <laughs> a phony hand and a message already written on a second blackboard. As the front board was slipped away, the message seemed to be written by, quote-unquote, the spirit chalk in the dark. And we see these uh, sort of, you know, old biddies or whatever looking at a chalkboard as there's a hand saying, give Swami Maharab $10,000. Nice. Yeah. So uh, the mighty Merlin's preventing them from getting scammed. And those were thrilling experiences, you know, recalls Mark. But not long after, I returned to finish my studies. A telegram brought me sad news. Aw, oh, a telegram says, Your uncle died last night. Come at once, Elsa. Immediately after graduation, I took possession of my inheritance. Your uncle, says Elsa, must have hoped you'd follow in his career. That's why he left you all his costumes and effects as well as his mansion on Mystery Hill. <laughs> Mystery Hill. Mystery Hill. <laughs> it's the Scooby-Doo. Uh, <laughs> but I'm still not sure that stage magic is for me. Hmm. He once showed me a secret compartment in this trunk. Let's see. It took me a moment to locate it, but inside, a strange medallion bearing mystic images and letters. And look, Elsa, there's a note here, too. And uh, he reaches inside and pulls out a medallion that says M-Y-R-O. And we see on there three heads. Three. Oh, the mirror medallion. Yeah. Dear Mark, he reads, if I die suddenly, do not take for granted that it was from natural causes. It was signed by my uncle. Do you suppose that he meant some unnatural thing? Some spirit from the unknown was responsible? Asks Elsa. No. I think he meant murder. That's what I thought. All those phonies he exposed, they each had a reason to want him out of the way. If one of them did it, I'll see that he pays for it. Don't you worry. But having no proof of foul play, the police dropped the case. But I was determined to press the manhunt. As we see young Mark and Elsa knocking on some doors, uh, Swami Maharab couldn't have killed oh. your uncle. Yeah, right, the guy from before. Yeah. He's been in jail for months, right where your uncle put him. Each suspect had an iron-bound alibi until finally... Elsa's reading a, a note here... The last man your uncle had begun to investigate was a Count Miro. Miro. The name seems familiar, but I can't quite place it. Of course, he thinks. The four letters on the medallion, they spell M-Y-R-O. Elsa, get me my uncle's research on the quote-unquote Count and two tickets to Monte Grande. 
<laughs> okay. Monte Grande. <laughs> it took us days to reach that small backward country, the country of Monte Grande, apparently. Um, that country looks like um, Bugs Bunny cartoons. You know, like in for Halloween when he would like have to go up to the castle yeah, and he meets the monster. Yeah, it's a big castle basically up on a, on a winding road. hill, right? One one, one little earth tremor that thing's hill. coming down. <laughs> you know, so he's saying as as they're driving up in a, in a sort of uh, jalopy, almost a dragula. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the people here believe that the first son of each generation of Myra was born with fantastic powers, Elsa. That's how the family dominated the region for ten centuries. Was it the damp, cool air that chilled us? Or the fear of facing the unknown, thinks Mark. There's no bell or knocker on the door. How are we supposed to announce our presence? Mark, the door's opening! Come in, Mark Merlin, says a creepy figure. I've been expecting you. Gasp, says Elsa. Of course she does, <laughs> right. because that's what women in the 50s did. Yes. Uh, the second suspenseful chapter follows on the third page following. So let's turn those pages. Surprised by this weird welcome, Mark continues, we followed our host into a great hall where we were invited to dine while the Count talked. Thus, because my father had to live abroad for his health, the Count recounts, uh, I was born away from Monte Grande, and the people knew nothing of me. You have proof of your claim to the family title, Count? asked Mark. A servant brought some papers. One was a birth certificate, and the other, a newspaper photo of you being welcomed to Monte Grande the day after my uncle's death. Since there are no airfields within hundreds of miles of this country, says the Count, you can see that I could not have been near your uncle only 24 hours earlier. Then why, I wondered, did my uncle suspect the Count? In answer, he threw back his cloak. Here's the reason. This ancient medallion gives my family supernatural powers. Centuries ago, an impostor copied the medallion and tried to pass himself off as a Miro. Recently, your uncle uncovered a medallion and mistakenly concluded that mine was the fake. I see, says Mark, but if the impostor had the true medallion long enough to copy it, why didn't he just use its power? Because anyone attempting to use the true medallion for evil, says the Count, will be destroyed by it. Listen, it's already begun to storm. May I invite you to spend the night? As we uh, see a sort of really quite nice outside shot there by uh, Mort Meskin. Very sort of atmospheric, you know, rainy uh, you know, image of the castle with lightning striking in the background. And it actually, uh, you can see the wind. Mm, he's, a, he's a good artist. Um, so later in Mark's room, uh, he's looking out the window... The Count's story sounds reasonable enough, except for that nonsense about fantastic powers. Still, I'm glad I didn't tell him I was wearing the medallion. Oh, whew. Suddenly, I'm so sleepy. I slept like a babe until the morning when I woke with a strange, ominous feeling. Great Godfrey, he says. Where, <laughs> where am I? This isn't the room I occupied last night. Mark Merlin has a uh, sort of trend of, of getting knocked out and waking up in strange places. Mm -hmm. I think Elsa might be... Uh, Slipping him a little Mickey there at some time. <laughs> so, anyway, he dashes to the window and stares out in shocked disbelief. Am I going mad? I fell asleep in a castle atop a mountain in Europe and I've awakened on a tropical island. Elsa, I've got to see her at once. He's, yeah, he totally suspects her as being the uh, the roofy queen. Either that or he wants to see her in a bikini. He's yeah. on a tropical island. Yeah, true. Um, but no sooner had I had I grasped the knob when the door flew open, as we see uh, Elsa and, uh, and Miro at the door. Mr. Merlin, something fantastic has happened. I know, Count Miro. It's as though we were transported to another world. Listen, what's that sound out in the corridor? In the next moment, the doorway was filled with something I can only describe as a waking nightmare. As we see a, a hooded fellow with a, with a spear standing in the doorway. Mark Merlin, I've been sent to bring you before the Council of Three. Come. Mark, what does it mean? Elsa gasps in, in astonishment. Um, the explanation came moments later in a room nearby as the menacing figure removes his hood. 
And, uh, and yes, and here we see the sort of anthropomorphic creatures from the splash panel. The, the fellow removing his hood is, uh, is Mr. Fox. And then, uh, you know, Mr. Fox. Right, yeah. Flanking him is, uh, you know, Mr. Leopard and, you know, and Mr. Bird. Almost like a, an Ebus or some sort of... Um, hawk. Yeah, like a hawk. Um, Mark Merlin, says the fox, you've been brought in from your world to stand trial in ours. You're charged with crimes against the supernatural. How do you plead? What? No. Says Mark. This is <laughs> what? No. <laughs> this is insane. How can you accuse me of such a thing when no one can commit crimes against the unknown? Like your uncle accuses the leopard, you set out to discredit the powers of the unknown. That's why we destroyed him, and why you must share his fate. This is wrong, says Miro. Neither he nor his uncle meant to defame you, dwellers of the unknown. They only meant to expose the frauds who trade on your true powers. How can you defend him, Count Miro? Says the fox. You, a blood descendant of the family to which we gave magic crafts. Both Mark Merlin and his uncle attempted to discredit you, but only due to a human error, says the Count. Their intentions were always honorable. Very well, says the bird. If you believe his heart is truly pure, there is a way to test it. But if he fails the prescribed test, he must die. Wait, I don't know whether I'm prepared for such a trial, says Mark. I don't know that you get a choice. <laughs> yeah. Fear not. The man who faces the three problems of honorable intent, the answer shall somehow be revealed to him. He only has to look sharply. Now, come, Mark Merlin as they beckon him into a, into a hall. Dazed by all that was happening, recounts Mark, I was marched into a long marble room, and, uh, and here we see from the splash panel the, uh, the three flaming doors, and he, as he thinks. They called this the three doors of flame. Apt description? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> These are the only exits, and I've been given 60 seconds to find a way out. But I, I can't walk through flames. Uh, suddenly he begins to feel a clutch of panic. Precious seconds ticking away, and I still haven't found the answer. Those smudges on the ceiling... That may be it. I better be right. Only a few seconds left. Here goes. And he was right, for as he pushes through the left arch, So, says the fox, you deduce that there was really no flames in the left archway, only a mirror door that reflected the fire of the arch it faced. I spotted the smudges made by the smoke on the ceiling above the right and middle arches, says Mark, but none over the left. That was my clue. Uh-huh. Yeah, but his triumph is short-lived. Uh, he dreaded the two more tests that lay ahead, and moments later, in a second room, as uh, we see Mark enter a room with sort of armaments on the wall and a, and a huge gargoyle overhanging the door. I wonder what plays here. There's no problem getting out. The doorway's clear. He moves to it quickly, wary of some sort of trick, when suddenly the statue from above the doorway totters and crashes to the floor. Great Godfrey, <laughs> he says again. Uh, it's blocking the entrance. Can't push it. Now what do I do? And what he does is he shoots a glance at the ancient weapons mounted on the wall, as Mark thinks. That's strange. A collection of weapons from past centuries. But there's one modern pistol among them. I think I understand. Uh, so he snatches the automatic from the wall, snaps it open, takes four bullets from the clip, and then using all his strength, gotta raise this thing off the floor, as he's you know, sort of shouldering the, uh, the gargoyle. Ugh, there it is. Now to toss a couple shells under it. Uh, I get what he's doing. That's very perceptive. <laughs> yeah, of him. yeah. So he repeats the process on the other side of the statue, and then. This trick has to work. Only seconds left. Uh, uh, as he's pushing it, it's starting to roll. Yep, he used it basically as a roller. Um, the cartridges under the statue are acting as rollers. I did it. And so once again, uh, he's greeted as he emerges. Well done, Mr. Merlin, says the fox-headed fellow. Thank you, Mr. Fox. <laughs> yep. Perhaps the answer was revealed to you because you are truly innocent. But the last test will finally decide that. Come. He's led into a third chamber. And uh, we see a long, narrow corridor which lets out into the open. Uh, it looks harmless, thinks Mark, but he's been fooled before. Uh, he wonders why there's a narrow track on the floor. But suddenly, the shocking answer becomes apparent. 
as we see a sort of a metal tiki god fellow on the rail. A uh, mechanical figure pointing his spear straight ahead. The locked door behind me prevents me from escaping, and this hall is too narrow for me to evade it. Got to stop it somehow. That is a narrow hallway. Yeah, it is. Right? He's only like barely the width of his shoulders. Yeah. Um, so he glances around frantically for the answer, uh, hoping it had been hidden as the others had been. Not a clue here, but this track, if I could jam it. Coins in my pocket were too small, but all at once I remembered something. I tore the medallion from my neck. Now to wedge it here and hope it does the trick. Uh, so closer and closer rolls the ominous tiki god. <laughs> it not as it says, a metallic <laughs> figure. Yeah. Um, but then at the last suspenseful moment... The wheel struck the medallion and jumped the track. With the statue tilted, I can squeeze past it. I've beaten all three problems. You're so. probably innocent then. <laughs> so we turn the, the page and uh, Mark dashes out into the daylight. Mark Merlin, you have passed the test, say the, uh, the creatures, uh, and are free to go. There's a boat waiting for you and your friend further down the beach. Count Miro must stay, however. We have a mission for him. Uh, so Elsa and I lost no time reaching the craft. It's incredible, Mark. Only last night I was in a castle sleeping more deeply than I ever had, and... And you felt it too, says Mark, that sense of deep sleep. I'm beginning to understand now. Look, those tracks on the beach. I'm beginning to get the picture now. So Mark leaves Elsa behind and dashes back to the house as he uh, busts open the door. And yep, we see our three figures removing their their little masks. They're actually just humans. Uh, Just as I thought, says Mark. (laughs) You're nothing but costume men. You, Miro, put a sleeping potion in our food and flew us in here in a pontoon plane to pull off this hoax. But why, Miro, Why? (laughs) (laughs) you might as well know marlin the medallion your uncle found was the true one i had to destroy it for as long as it existed someone might challenge me to use the true medallion and that would destroy me since i'm not a genuine miro those papers you saw were forgeries then you killed my uncle to get the medallion from him but how could you get to my country and back in 24 hours when there's no airfields in monte grande i built a short runway behind my castle says the count plane flies out into the canyon and gains air power as it drops um that's actually true it it does do that (laughs) as a pilot i can tell you um you created this hoax to get me to give up the medallion willingly exactly look you can still see the mark made on it by the wheel well this is the end of the true medallion there's a a little flamethrower on it um now i can return to monte grande and rule those who believe in the power of the miro family Uh, so helplessly elsa and mark watch as the criminals take to the air but baroom we see an explosion in their little aircraft Mark, what happened? Says Elsa, you know, astonished as usual. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe the gas tank exploded. Uh, It was the only thing the quote-unquote count hadn't foreseen. Somehow the others survived the blast, but not the killer count. This is incredible, says Mark. The medallion he's wearing is marked by the statue's wheel. It's the genuine one, but I saw him destroy it. Mark, could it be that real supernatural beings exist and that they destroyed the count and caused the melted medallion to reappear? As we flash back to modern day, I couldn't find the answer to Elsa's question, but I determined to spend my life solving that and similar puzzles of the unknown. It's a fantastic story, Mr. Merlin, says the uh, the policeman. Um, but don't worry, we'll have that magic heirloom back to you before sundown. And later, as the police scour the city and recover the medallion, there it is, Elsa, the prize exhibit of our new museum, and that unbreakable glass should keep it safe. Dangerous as it is, I'll always prize the mirror medallion, Mark. It brought us together, says Elsa. The end. As Mark and Elsa, you know, continue their quest into the, the strange and unknown. In just a couple issues, though, uh, there would be a rather sharp change in direction for this series. Uh, as I mentioned, there's always sort of an, an ebb and flow in comics between, you know, what's popular from day to day. And as we would know from the last couple episodes we did, 
around this time superhero comics were really just taking the world by storm. So a couple of those elements would be introduced even into a series like this. I know I mentioned last time out that we might go a little bit deeper in the House of Secrets, you know, introduce uh, another character, uh, Eclipso, who would come on in, in the early 60s. But I think uh, what we'll do is we'll hold off on that character and we'll explore him in concert with Mark Merlin's more superhero elements uh, in our next episode. Okay, uh, sounds good. Yep. So with that in mind, um, let's, uh, you know, revisit the intent of the podcast. We took a look at three stories tonight. So one by one, let's, uh, let's go through and find out what your judgment is. First up, we had the uh, the eponymous tale introduction of Misto Magician Detective, uh, you know Rick Carter, bush pilot who lands in Tibet and uh, you know learns a legitimain to fight crime. What do you think of old Misto? So Misto was actually, I didn't find it really engaging, but I, I wanted to like it. You know, it was it was a great story idea, but I didn't really like the execution of it. I, I like that the old man taught him magic, and then he was able to like use it for good. Uh, I also have one other thing. Uh, the the old man, when he was saying that, uh, he's like, I, I've cleverly concealed this bird and carry it comfortably inside <laughs> of my jacket. And I'm like, really? Comfortably, you say? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that must be a really big coat. But anyway, it just really wasn't engaging. And I kind of found that I was like wandering and I would have to like bring it back. So overall judgment? Um, yeah, that bird's going to die. No. So you didn't like the execution, and so accordingly, there is an execution. There is an execution. <laughs> and actually, no, another thing I wanted to mention, that, that artwork, I, I found that, like, the, the Misto art was a little flat. Yeah, the art on that was done by a guy by the name of Leonard Starr, uh, who I'm not familiar with. He might have just been, like, a house artist of, of the time. I'm not familiar with him either. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> so, all right. So, Misto, we get a, a thumbs down. Uh, moving on then to uh, Mark Merlin. Uh, the first story we covered was I Scout Earth's Strangest Secrets, the introduction of the character. <laughs> okay, so that was, like, very descriptive. Uh, you, you knew what you were getting into if you were picking that one up. I liked that he was breaking the fourth wall. He would he would actually speak directly to the audience, like it was almost like a narrative. Although there were some parts of it where it, it was a kind of expository. It wasn't a very tight story, and there were some obvious uh, gaps in logic. Yeah, well, it was like a th it was three in one, right? You know, he did the he did the one that there was a rational explanation. He did the one where it was perpetuated by a hoax, and then the third was his question mark file, right? Yeah, and of course, you know, the question mark files are the the most fun. Um, the artwork in the Merlin stories was really very good. Oh, I love more Meskin. Yeah, and I mean, like, there's uh, there's actual depth, which you know we commented on actually throughout the story. It makes a big difference. It actually it it added to the story. So for that one, I don't know. Can we put the bird on some kind of like, probation thing? <laughs> All right, bird, you're flying today, but next time you you better step up your game. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah, so this little bird's gonna fly away, but we're gonna we're gonna pluck a couple feathers from him. <laughs> All right, it's gonna so, have to work for it. Yeah. So then, moving on then to our final story, you know the uh, the origin of Mark Merlin, the the trial by fire. Um, what did you think of that? Much better. This bird definitely gets to live. You know, like no kind of like you know weird maiming or torture coming from me. <laughs> uh, the artwork continued to be awesome in this, and it also added to the story. Uh, and this one, I have to say, uh, the the most significant improvement in this is that the story itself was actually really engaging. So I was able to excuse a lot of the things that I thought were like, you know, didn't quite make sense. And I was like, okay, that's all right. What did you think about Elsa? 
well, she she's a crutch. But back in back in the day, I think women were meant to be seen and not really to be heard. And mm. I think she's a fantastic illustration of that. Yeah, she's she's no Lois Lane. She's no <laughs> <laughs> no 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 intrepid reporter there. Yeah. So all right, well, good. So you know, across the board, then we sort of have a half and half. We get uh, we have two wins yeah. and and one dead bird. Right, but well, one middle of the road. Right, so you got one dead, one live, and then you know one with a couple feathers out. <laughs> All right, good. Um, so as I say, you know, we were looking to go maybe a little bit deeper into House of Secrets this time, but, you know, we're going to hold that off till next time. And then we'll probably get right back into the superhero stories uh, in the episode after that. So once again, we want to thank you all for joining us, and we hope to see you again here next time on the Parliament of Rooks podcast. Thanks, everybody. Like a almost a M night uh, sh- sh- yeah. <laughs> Thomas knows a shit ton about comics. <laughs> a shit ton. A shit ton. Is, that, is, that, is that an accurate measurement? <laughs> Shyamalan. M night Shyamalan. I practice it. I still can't do it. Fellow by the name of Max Gaines. He was the son of a. Oh no, I'm wrong. Is that correct? Shyamalan? M. Night Shyamalan. I looked it up even. So, new fun. Shit ton. (laughs) (laughs) If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email us at tporpodcast at gmail.com.